All right. Hello and welcome to the Yet Another Value podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Walker. And with me today, I'm excited to have Lewis Cammy. Lewis is ex-Citadel and he's actually prepping to launch his own fund once uh, once you know he's gotten a little bit of time off and everything. So congrats on that. I'm excited for you and I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Lewis, how's it going? Thank you. It's going well. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, hey, let me start this podcast the way I do every podcast. Uh, first, just a quick disclaimer for everyone. Nothing on this podcast is investing advice. We're going to be talking about a smaller cap, de-stacked company that you know some people might argue is a science project. So everyone just remember, especially this company, it, you know, the risk level is much higher than your typical company. Nothing on here is investing advice. So let's get that out the way. Second thing, I, I want to give a pitch for you, my guest, you know, Anyone who's read my blog knows that I have been very skeptical of SPACs in general, but there can be diamonds in the rough. And one of the reasons I've been skeptical is I don't find a lot of people doing great work on them. You know, most of the work comes down to, oh, well, when they de-SPAC, they put out projections. And if you run the projections on next year's numbers, it looks kind of cheap and everybody's getting their face ripped off. But, you know, I've been chatting and I I know you've done a lot of work on a lot of these de-SPACs and you've got some interesting angles and you can back up a lot of the positions you have, which I don't think a lot of people have can do that. So I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited to talk about one of the companies you've done a lot of work on. And let's just go from there. You know, the company we're going to talk about is Origin Materials. The ticker is O-R-G-N. Lewis, why are you so excited about Origin? Sure. Well, to start off, I share your skepticism of SPAC. So you should know that I'm not looking at this as, oh, it's a SPAC. We got to own it. Um, I'm happy to talk stats about SPACs. As, you know, I'm going to focus my fund on SPACs. But for origin specifically, you know, I found in my career the most profitable trades are where you could ride a big trend. And to me, there's no bigger trend than ESG and the new focus on carbon neutrality. And so what origin does is they manufacture PET that is carbon negative. And what is PET used for? You know, the most common use case that we think of is, you know, plastic for bottles and whatnot. So think about that bottle at Pepsi being uh, carbon negative in packaging. And there's many more use cases going through clothing and tires and building products. So to me, the the critical dynamic is we know this trend on carbon neutrality, and in this case, a carbon negative input, and they're manufacturing it for the same price. So in the past, if you're a company, you have to choose, do I make money or do I go green? And now they don't have to choose anymore. And so to me, that's a no-brainer. And the PET is chemically identical to petroleum-based PET. So if you're, you know, I'll, I'll... focus on Pepsi and just use them as an example. If you drop that into your existing equipment, you know, you get your bottles, no changing required, no retooling. Um, Pepsi's obviously tested this, they're investors in the company. And to me, that's really interesting. And so, you know, obviously we have SPAC projections. I know, you know, SPAC projections on a whole have been discredited lately, but to me, you know, they're on the right side of the trend. And if they can execute, there's going to be a lot of upside in the stock. And we could talk about the numbers and what this looks like, but you know, it's you're riding a trend. You're early. Um, you know, something I've been saying about this before is this is really like a venture capital investment. As you said, this is a riskier than normal stock. You know, if you're wrong, the stock could really be a zero, and if you're right, the stock could be worth it from five dollars and change up five x, ten x, twenty x, depending on some of the projections. And you know, that to me is a diligence and portfolio sizing question. But we have a lot of people saying like, oh, I wish I could be in the Series C of Facebook. And there's obviously no mechanism for an individual investor to be in. Now, in fairness, for every Series C success story, there's probably a bunch of failures that we don't hear of and we're glad we didn't invest in. So this is the opportunity to get in early, do your work and know that if it works, you're going to make a lot of money. And if it doesn't, you're going to lose a lot of money. And you just have to be comfortable with that risk reward. And obviously I am. And that's why I'm talking about this today. Perfect. Perfect. So I guess the first, and you covered it well. So Origin, I think in the long run, they could do a lot of things, but the main thing they're focusing on right now is they take, I believe it's pulp wood, wood pulp. It's a wood-based product. They take it, but they can actually take other stuff. And they've got a process where they take that, they're going to convert that into a basic building blocks that could, you know, it could make, I think, a plastic water bottle. They mentioned a lot of, uh, they said, hey, the actual growing uses for this thing is seat covers, textiles, that sort of stuff. You can take that and you can say, hey, instead of making this out of something petroleum-based, make it out of something wood-based. And this is not only is it better for the environment because it's not petroleum-based, but actually 
if you take wood, wood, I believe the thing they said is wood absorbs CO2. And normally when you use wood, that releases the CO2. So this is actually carbon negative because you're taking the wood, turning it into a plastic feedstock and then using that for something. So that CO2 never gets released. So it's, it's carbon negative. Am I, am I kind of thinking about that correctly? That's exactly right. And I am not a scientist or a chemist, but that is exactly my understanding too. And they, the companies actually publish a report from Deloitte on their website that kind of affirms all the carbon negative dynamics of their product. So, you know, for one thing, you know, SPACs tend to be very cagey and not forthcoming on disclosure. And I found Origin to be a little more forthcoming um, and not to go off topic, but in my last call with them, I said, you know, one of the big feedback pieces of feedback that I read on Twitter is like, we want to see the product. We want to see the existing facility in Sacramento. How about a video? And I said, yeah, we're going to do that. We like that idea. And we're also going to have some, you know, there's two big consulting reports that if you're an institutional investor and sign an NDA, you can read, which, you know, I think is, is pretty helpful. They're working to come up with kind of a, a version of that that's not super sensitive that they can publish. Because their view is, you know, we want to share the story. We want to get it out. We have nothing to hide. And, you know, I've, I've spent some time with the SPAC sponsors and, you know, both during this project and in prior uh, events in my life. And so I, I think they really believe, you know, they, they believe the dream. So. Perfect. So actually, I'm glad you mentioned SPAC sponsors because I went, went back, I reread the, I reread the call when they announced, I think it was Arti, it was RDS. RDS is what RDS. SPAC is called. RDS, when they were merging with the, when they were merging with Origin, it was in mid-February. And one of the things they let off with was, hey, we are a top-tier SPAC, right? Like our guys have a great background. We raised $750 million, which is one of the larger SPACs ever raised. You know, most SPACs, for those who are familiar with SPAC market, most SPACs are in the two to $300 million range. Anything above seven, every, anything above 500 is where you're talking about Liberty Media, Pershing, SoftBank. Like these are the best SPAC sponsors. So these guys clearly thought, people thought they were credible. They got $750 million, but I was hoping you could dive into, you know, like, why were these top tier SPAC sponsors? What is their background? Why are the why is this a team who, when they due diligence this project and say this is a good project, you kind of want to perk your ears up? So let's so the, the two sponsors are Charles Drucker and Boone Sim. Charles was the former CEO of WorldPay, and before WorldPay, the company was called Vantive Payments Company. Um, I you know I, I have a background in payments, um, and so he was a great CEO in terms of execution, capital allocation and ultimately sold the company to FIS. Um, I think that was in 2019. Um, so just really you know, well-respected executive. Boone, we overlapped at Credit Suisse. In fairness, he was group head and I was an analyst. So quite a few levels um, in between. Boone left Credit, so he ran global M&A at Credit Suisse, left to become the president or head of Tomasic North America, which is Singapore's sovereign wealth fund, and then ultimately started his own firm called Arteus. Um, and so, you know, the thing about, you know, their experience is they know how to do diligence. Like Charles at uh, WorldPay did a lot of M&A. Boone at Tomasic did a lot of M&A. And I think some of that rigor is showed if you read some of the deal documents about all the customer calls, et cetera. It's a far cry from, you know, Barry Sternlich was on CNBC talking about a deal where the other SPAC did diligence in 72 hours and, and the deal was done. And Sternlich just said, you know, the only thing we can do in 72 hours is verify that the address on the, uh, you know, on the letterhead is accurate. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's clear to me that they spent their time not only in reviewing other targets, but just how they diligence this, bringing in two consultants, doing all the customer calls. You know, it shows good process. Now, look, good process doesn't always mean it works out at the end, but I think, it, you know, it's like diligencing a stock. You could just buy a stock and it works out. But if you really do your homework, you know, you hope it pays off. Candidly, so far it hasn't for me here, but I, uh, I'm i no longer at Citadel where my duration is short and I can take these VC type bets. Yeah. Hey, look, it, it, that's part of being an investor, right? I, I think Mike Mitchell on the podcast I just did, he said, you know, it might've been before, but he said, look, if you can't take big drawdowns, you're not meant to be a concentrated investor. And, you know, be, part of the, the ability to generate alpha is being willing to look silly in the short term is what I would say. But yeah. I want to go, you know, again, and we'll talk more about origin in a second, but let, let's focus on the sponsorship because- uh, you know, I do hear top tier SPAC sponsor. The guy did a great job running a, a payments company. They had finance backgrounds and stuff and everything. They they did real due diligence here, which, as you said, for a while at the peak of the SPAC mania, you would hear rumors that SPACs weren't doing any more due diligence than saying, hey, how big can you make your projections in three years or something? Real due diligence, real team. But I do worry, right? Like we talked about payments and financing backgrounds, and they wrote a, let's call it a billion dollar check all in to fund 
a science project, kind of. So why why did these guys focus on origin? Why should we feel confident? Because they, they kind of went, you would have thought these guys were looking to buy a catapult or a buy now, pay later. And instead they got they got this really interesting tech, but you know, it's again, science project. So why was this a choice and why do you feel confident in their due diligence here? It's funny that the one SPAC he chose in that example is actually trading lower than origin and catapult, but- <laughs> well. <laughs> I, I do hear you there, but you know, that was but, just but the first one that came to it, It's a fair point. And I would say, look, Boone is not only like a, a payments guy. You know, when I was with him at Credit Suisse, like he was doing healthcare deals. He was totally across the board. At Tomasic, you know, I'm less familiar with everything, but Tomasic is very big kind of across the board. Um, you know, they're very big in ESG. So for starters, I don't think we should kind of put them in such a small box. The second thing is just knowing how to diligence deals. You know, the reality is that you and I, you know, could have shown up to a bank in December and raised the SPAC and everyone would have said, of course, go right ahead. And so then we would have, you know, my background is public companies. Like I just don't have that background in diligence. And so for a guy, guys like Boone and Drucker that have done so much MA in their careers, knowing, you know, sometimes it's okay to know that you don't know the answer. It's knowing how do you find the right answer. And I think, you know, that's represented in bringing in the customers or sorry bringing the consultants, and then you take it one level further, you know, these guys have all the corporate connections in the world. So being able to have those conversations directly with the Pepsi boardroom, you know, helps you really get some insights into an asset in a way that, you know, guys like you or I wouldn't be able to do. That's perfect. That's perfect. All right. So I've mentioned that I, I think we've given a good overview of the sponsor. I think we've given a good overview of, hey, Origin Stream is we take wood or some type of stock and we turn it into basically the basics of what right now plastics and petroleum would use. But let's talk about where they are in the process, right? Because this is a company that was founded in 2008. They're just, I'll actually turn it over to you. You know, they're building Origin 1, they're building Origin 2, but they are no revenue right now. So right. I guess the two questions would be, what's the timeline for getting to revenue, for getting to EBITDA profitability and all that? And then alongside that, you mentioned some of the customers they're working with. You know, How good do you feel about the backlog, the commitments and everything. And we might talk about that in a second, but obviously SPACs have had a lot of issue with backlogs, commitments, forward numbers and everything. So I want to make sure I address all that. So from a timeline standpoint, Origin 1 is behind schedule. Like if you Google it, you'll find that out. And then the reason Origin 1 is behind schedule is they ran out of money. They didn't have funding. So this fact- Let's just back up a second because I'm worried I didn't describe it. What is Origin 1? Origin One is the first facility. So when you think about facilities right now, they have a, like a demo facility in Sacramento where they can make product that's basically proof that we can make product. Then the first scale plant, which is still going to be a subscale plant, is Origin One, which is being built in Ontario, Canada, in Sarnia. Um, and so that plant was started a few years ago, and it was supposed to be done, I want to say in 2019, maybe it's 2018, plus or minus, and they just ran out of money. Um, and so it was one of the things that I came across too, you know, like this is a construction project, essentially, you know, why are they, you know, behind and they ran out of money and that's why the SPAC deal is so important. If you look at their prior fundraising rounds, they were just small in the grand scheme of a project of this magnitude. So origin one is expected to be online at the end of 2022. So, you know, I view that as five quarters from now, and I think that'll be a really important catalyst for the stock origin two from a timing standpoint, site selection by the end of this year, construction beginning in Q1 23. You can't lock in financing. I know this is a common question until you're about to start construction. So in Q1 23 or maybe Q4 22, you'll also see that financing locked in. And then that facility is supposed to come up online in 2025 and you'll have a full year revenue in 2026. Now, as someone who's been around construction projects, if these projects are a quarter or two delayed, it wouldn't surprise me. It also wouldn't change the story. I mean, another SPAC that I invested in, and I don't want to go too far off topic, but um, it was a cruise company called Lindblad. The deal closed in, 2020, in 2015. I, I know Lindblad. I, th well, yeah. I think I told you about it. So literally, the story was they had cruise ships running at you know, over 90% occupancy, and they needed SPAC capital for new ships. And the SPAC literally didn't show that in the stock price until the first ship hit the water. And there were delays as there always are, but you know, eventually ship one got in, ship two, ship three, and the stock worked. And fortunately, then COVID happened. But before then, you know, you can you saw like, yeah, it's frustrating. But if you're approaching this with duration, you know, I, they mentioned on their earnings call that things were running a few months earlier. But you know, for me, I don't care if these facilities are if you 
when I say facilities origin one and two are at run rate capacity in 26 or 27, to me, that's the same thing. So you mentioned origin one was supposed to be done in 2018, 2019. Now they're projecting by the end of 2022. How much, just to give people an idea of cost, how much cost is in origin one at this point and how much total cost will origin one cost? And then origin one is subscale. How Origin 2 doesn't have a lot of money in it yet, but how much will Origin 2 cost, just so people can start thinking about how big these things are? I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know those numbers by hand, which maybe I should, but... No, you know, that's one of the things about anything modern. You get paid for interpretation, right? You don't don't have to know the numbers off the top of your head. You get paid for interpreting. You can save the numbers in a spreadsheet. So so Origin 1, $70 million of CapEx. Origin 2, just under a billion one. So, I'm not. It's a good question. I'm not sure how much of Origin One has already been deployed. What I do know is that the modules have been. So these are set up as modules, which again, this part's above my head, but really interesting. The facility is basically delivered in parts, and then has to be put together. You know, run the electricity through it, et cetera, which Coke Industries is doing most of, and turned on. And so, you know, seventy million for Origin One, a billion one for Origin Two, and you know. They put out a nice slide also. Here's how we're going to finance everything and some of the project finance assumptions, which we can touch on um, as well. Just to bring up a point you made, though, about you know the backlog and whatnot. So one of the things I talked to the sponsors about was some of the other deals they looked at and you know this concept of revenue backlogs. And what they said was, you know, a few of the things we looked at, like the backlog numbers were huge, but you had to put down a $250 deposit. And, you know, I I won't go into specifics, but if you, for instance, go for two of the EVs, when I was studying them, I made a reservation. I think one was Fisker and I can't remember which was the other one at this point. Um, And like you could put down, I think it was a $250 deposit and $200 of it was refundable. So to me, it's like, okay, well, I don't know how much I can believe your order book. Now, with respect to origin, there's some stuff we know and some stuff we don't. So they just told us that the order book was three and a half billion up from 1.9 billion when they put out their investor deck in May. So obviously a huge jump. But then the question is, how like how real is that? And you know, so if you look back at the investor deck, they kind of split out their order book and, and they're not going to do this going forward, but they split it out between an offtake agreement and a capacity reservation. So the offtake agreement is is a contract, it's binding, and it goes on the customer's balance sheet. And these are big contracts, right? These are $100 million plus contracts. And so they've said that so far, they've had 100% of their contracts transition from capacity reservation to offtake. They all have to transition for project financing. So again, you know, come that early 2022 date when, or sorry, early 23 date when construction set to begin for Origin 2, these will all have to move over. But, you know, right now we're seeing a big increase in demand $100 million contract means it's board level. This isn't some guy signing off on you know, a couple of co- a couple of electric vehicles. Um, so they are strategic, but until they go you know, off take, I guess technically they're, you know, I guess you could see a cancellation. Now, in my opinion, one of the things that hasn't been debated here is the demand, right? There is demand for this product. And so I don't worry as much about cancellations unless one, we think the focus on carbon neutrality is going to diminish or two, there's a competitor. And while there may be competitors over time, everyone who's so frustrated with how long this project is taking, I have to imagine with first mover advantage, competition's not going to be for quite some time if there even is competition. Okay. Actually, that, that's great. So I have some more, you know what, I'll do my questions on backlog and then I'll move into some of the stuff about first mover advantage and demand you just talked about. So just on backlog, you know, I, so when they announced the deal in February, I believe they said a billion in backlog. April or May Investor Day, it was up to 1.9, 2 billion. Q2 earnings come out in late July, early August. They say they've got three and a half billion. You've talked about how firm those are. It sounds like you think those are pretty firm. I guess so that, that settles it because as you said, a lot of SPACs, you know, you had the Fisker thing where right. we were getting into real debates over what the definition of a pre-order and everything was. But one of my questions, it comes back to you said I wouldn't be surprised if this, this construction is late by a quarter or two. I would say I wouldn't be surprised if this construction was late by a year or three. But if the construction is late, how cancelable these are? How cancelable are these contracts due to late construction, missed deadlines? Would Origin owe any penalties, any fees, or anything? Because you know I could see a scenario where 
this is built by 2028, but all their can- orders are getting canceled or they owe huge fees to customers because they're they're too late. Well, to me, again, it, it comes back to the demand here, right? If if you believe in the demand and a customer wants to cancel, well, you'll say, I mean, this is not how the real world works, obviously, but you would say like, okay, I've got the next guy who wants your spot. That's fine. And so um, if you look at some of the filings with the SEC, they did miss some customer deadlines because of these delays. And you know, you've just seen them, you know, push down the road, no penalties. Um, I think everyone here is rooting for success. I don't think Pepsi or Nestle or Mitsubishi care about some small penalty. They care that we have this target out there and we need to hit it. And we want you to therefore get product up and running as fast as possible. Perfect. Okay. So we've talked about You've talked about a lot of demand for this product, right? People, big companies want to go carbon neutral. They want to go carbon negative, right? Yeah. Lots of demand for a product. Let's not forget the pricing of carbon credits. So that's another dynamic too. I'll actually get there in a second, but agreed. So there's tons of there's tons of reasons that companies want to get carbon neutral products and to get a product that in this case is basically plastic, except without the except without the carbon. I mean, that that's pretty much the dream. So I guess. I don't doubt there's demand. My two questions there would be, you mentioned first mover advantage. They've been working on this project for 2008. So I guess my first question is, how proprietary is this tech? You know, if, if they successfully do this, why aren't there hundreds of copycat things getting built? I guess it would take a couple of years, but they're basically making a commodity. Why is this process unique? Why couldn't this get ripped off and just kind of do what happens to all commodity players and drive prices down to basically the cost of capital, cost of production? Sure. So- it's a really important question, and it's one I was asking them. And I'm going to flip to my exact notes here, but basically, they have an IP portfolio. So this isn't just purely like, hey, anyone can do this. Um, let's see if I can find my notes. So basically, they have process patents, which is they have a, the actual patent to get economic conversion between feedstock and the PET. That's covered by their patent. So. The magic here is obviously that they can produce at the same price as petroleum-based, and they believe that process is patented. And they also believe that they have a lot of trade secrets. Now, candidly, I don't know those trade secrets because no one outside of origin should. And I don't have the science background to tell you like, oh, this is you know iron pat. But what I can tell you is we've done calls with companies like DuPont and, um, and some of the other chemical names. And they've based a lot of these big companies, they just don't have their R&D centers anymore. So they're not making these big developments. So the simple answer of like, why isn't anyone else doing it is because it's really hard for DuPont to allocate capital to a project like this. It's much easier, right? If DuPont, if you read about, I'm picking on DuPont, right? Whether it's DuPont or, or Chevron or ExxonMobil, someone big in petrochemicals, if they invest $500 million in a project and it fails, someone gets fired. If not, a whole division gets fired. But if you buy a successful VC business for billions of dollars, you know you look like a hero. Like we're being greener, we're satisfying this need. And so I think those are, you know, that's broadly across corporate America. I don't think that's unique to the situation, and it's arguably why the VC environment agrees. Like these companies have lower hurdle rates, so they pursue kind of less risky pro- projects. Um, and so, you know, the feedback we've gotten was if this is successful, it's more likely you'll see partnerships and, and M&A versus just outright competition. Now, I'm sure there's some places like China where there's a history of, you know, IP being abused or whatnot. Maybe there's risk there. But I think in places like the U.S. and Europe where, you know, IP protections are greater, you know, they shouldn't have as much of an issue. Yeah, that, you actually cut off my next question because it was going to be, hey, you're going out and building, you know, these multi-hundred million dollar plants. If you've got proprietary technology and you don't really have a history of building these giant plants, why aren't you just you know licensing it to chemical players and having them build the plants? And you know that's super capital light. You could license it to a hundred plants. You could be making a lot of money. So so that makes sense. Let's, so just 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 to, just to add there, I think that's why proof of concept is so important, right? Like one of these big chemical companies, for the same reason they don't want to develop this in house, they're not going to say like, oh sure, we'll build you a plant and do a licensing deal without you actually showing that it could be done at scale. And so, you know, at the risk of moving this more towards stock talk, like when I think about what are the key catalysts, I think the biggest thing is getting Origin One up and running. Because if you can prove that we can get Origin One up and running, you know, within and you know, hopefully on time, but within, you know, if you go a little over, hopefully just a little bit, hopefully, you know, within budget, 
and then deliver products at the economics that you forecasted, then all of a sudden you've de-risked the future. And so now all these big players can say, like, we want to partner with you. We want to buy more from you, et cetera. Like it really changes the narrative to from, is this commercially viable? How much construction risk is there to how many of these can you stamp out? And I think about it at that point, it turned, <laughs> I, I laugh when I say this, it turned into a restaurant at that point. You know, it's like Chipotle in the early days, like we know we have these great unit economics. How many of these restaurants can we stamp out? You know, once you prove one of these facilities up and running, you know, you got to multiply the, the CapEx numbers quite a bit, but it's no different. You're just stamping these out wherever you can. And so I think, you know, I don't think this is a story about waiting until 2027 for Origin 2. I think once they prove that Origin 1 works, you know, the story is really de-risked. And conversely, if Origin 1 doesn't work, you're going to know then and there that, you know, this probably isn't, isn't going to be worth your time as an investment. That's perfect. I want to talk about construction costs in a second, but let, let me just talk about demand real quick. You mentioned you think the demand is there. I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think companies want to go carbon neutral, but one of the big places I've run into problems, and I noticed this in the calls where they said, hey, we've built into our models that we're going to get, you know, a, I don't know the exact numbers, but if plastic feedstock costs a penny, we're going to get a penny and two tenths of a penny or something, right? They, they said they had built in a little bit of a premium because they are a carbon neutral thing. I hear that. It makes sense. I know companies are willing to pay up for it, but I, I've always just kind of been of the opinion. And, and I think I've seen this play out several times when the rubber hits the road. If your ESG material is a, if your ESG input material is a little bit more expensive than, you know, the traditional plastic material or something, when the rubber hits the road, a lot of times you will have trouble getting people to switch over because, you know, companies, they're economic creatures and there's tragedy to the commons. They just want the cheapest input. So my two questions are, do you feel comfortable with that assumption? And if you don't, or even if you do, if this is kind of cost neutral, if they're selling at the same cost as a traditional petrochemical input, can this thesis still work? So in talking to the company, they always say, we don't want to price the material premium because we want to scale this business. What we want is to look at the cost of existing PET and look at the cost of the carbon credits. And basically, we, we want to split the carbon credit with the company. That's how they view it. Now, they won't go into the weeds of, is that a 50-50 split, a 90-10, et cetera. But I don't think, you know, when you look at their pricing versus Danimer PCT, you'll notice Danimer PCT, the pricing is much higher. And, you know, their, their product right now is recyclable and for origin that's supposedly down the road. So if you want to place value on that, but their goal is just to be the scale provider. They don't want an excuse. And I was trying to find it in my notes. They gave the number for what their break even is relative to oil prices. And I, I want to say they're cost competitive with like $20 oil. So they really have some flexibility here, even in a you know down market for petroleum. Perfect. Perfect. Let's talk construction costs, right? Because as you said, you, this could come in a quarter or two late, and you wouldn't be surprised. You know, my experience with anyone who's building a big plant, especially this is a pretty or novel, a little house, <laughs> a little house, but especially yeah. something novel, you estimate it, and then when it's done, you know, MSGE they're building this sphere out in Las Vegas, which is going to be the most technologically advanced. Uh, concert venue in the world. And they came out and they said 1.3 billion. And as soon as they said that, everyone laughed at them and said, no way, guys, that's going to be, by the, by the time it's all said and done, it's going to be 2 billion. And MSG kept defending it, kept defending it. And then every quarter, their cost estimates would creep, 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 creep up. So I guess my question here is, you know, they say, hey, we've got enough cash, we've got enough capital to fund Origin 1 and Origin 2. And we have hundred million left over to go for origin three through six, but we'll, we'll figure it out once we get origin one and two built. We'll talk about the funding in a second, because I think there's questions there as well, but just on the costs, what do you think about their cost assessment and how you get comfortable? Because I, I know I know you've done work here. I'm asking the leading question, but how do you get comfortable that there's not going to be massive cost overruns here? So honestly, to me, the biggest risk here is construction, whether it's on the pricing or execution to, or just the whole thing. There's real construction risk, um, and listen, you can hire the best ENC companies, which they have. And I, I don't know if you felt this way or not, but I felt like their second quarter deck was a lot of name dropping. Like we want to show you who we're working with. Um, and so, from my standpoint, you know, my estimates are going to be no better than the best ENC companies in the world, and from you know the consultants involved. And look, we've gone through a big inflation cycle, right? Like you're hearing it 
across the board. And so, you know, if inflation massively increases from here, you know, could there be cost overruns? You know, technically that's right. Um, in speaking to the company, the two data points that I can share are they priced everything based on commodity levels in 2019. So whereas we're seeing all this inflation because we're really comparing against these low base effects of 2020, they were a bit more conservative in their assumptions. And the other thing is, you know, whenever we talk about a specific um, assumption, it just feels like there's a lot of conservatism. So I don't want to say there can be no cost overruns because historically there are. And, you know, within that $100 million excess, I'm, I know that they already have modeled in some cost overruns, but it is real. That's a real risk. And I think, again, that's one of the reasons we need to watch Origin 1 so closely, because if Origin 1 comes in 50% over cost, we're going to get worried about Origin 2. But if Origin 1 comes in at or around budget, we're going to say, like, okay, they have a handle on things. And their forecasting methodology is accurate. Like, to me, this is all... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please finish. I was going to say, a lot of this is a test on management's ability to forecast. We've seen in so many other SPACs that they either have no idea or they've outright lied. And so the first big test here is going to be Origin 1, on time and on budget. Do I remember... So Coke is doing a lot of the... Is doing a lot of the construction here... Do I remember that they've got a guarantee, some type of guarantee from them on the deliverables and the... Yeah. So so when I learned this, if you could have seen my face when I was on the call with them, my jaw basically dropped because to me, someone who's not in the construction industry, that just seems like such a big deal when we're talking about like the main risk here is construction. So I'm just putting my notes right here, but so... um, Coke Modular is basically running the process uh, and they're just top in the world at building small and medium-sized factories. Um, And so they gave a performance guarantee on the hydraulics, thermal, and mechanical performance of the plant, which, you know, according to the company is an expression of how confident they are because they they rarely do this. And the other thing that they said that I thought was really interesting is they said that Coke would be like a dream conglomerate to partner with down the road. And that they've had a relationship forever, but they've never, you know, formalized it outside of this project. So I heard that and I said, like, okay, am I really worried about construction for no reason? Like, yes, that to me, again, I keep going back. That's the big risk because I'm confident in the demand. But, you know, if you have co kind of guaranteeing your facility, that's, and again, this is for Origin 1, not Origin 2. So just to clarify, but, you know, for me, who views Origin 1 as this big catalyst like that de-risks it quite a bit, in my opinion. All right, so I've got some stuff around the SPAC spot process that I w- want to walk through, but I, I think we've done, I think we've covered a lot on demand, construction, a lot of risk here, but I, I just want to pause here for a second. Is there any big upside case we haven't hit? Is there any big downside case th- that you feel is important to understand that we haven't hit? A- anything uh, kind of on the origin side that we haven't hit yet? No, look, I, I think the market for the most part, like there's some skeptics on the top wide, but I think that's more of a function of the other SPACs. And people get it. Like the risk here is okay. You have this. We we believe it. Like everyone wants to go carbon neutral and carbon neutral at the same price. Like that's easy to understand. Like can you actually execute it? And that's construction and financing. The financing assumptions I feel fine about right now um, for two reasons. One, you know, just there's a lot of liquidity out there, um, so we know you know these projects are getting done and levered up. You could see in PCT's presentation that they outlined an 80% debt to equity mix for their plans going forward. And even with the new post-redemption um, structure, you know, origins at 70%, 70, 75. So that seems reasonable. Um, you can, uh, you know, if you talk to some of the project financiers, you'll see that you'll hear from them. That's all reasonable. So I feel fine about that. But to be clear, the risk is, you know, if you have some black swan event between now and locking in the financing, could the markets get tougher? Absolutely. And so that's why that stays a risk until, you know, financing is locked in. But Based on the state of the world today, you feel okay about it. And on construction, you know, they have to get it done, but you know you have some mitigating factors in Coke and some of these other companies that they announced on their second quarter call as, you know, best in class builders. Perfect. And then on, you know, the, the upside, sorry, just to, to jump okay. there, like at five dollars a share, I'm not really worried about the ultimate upside. Like whether you say, you know, 50 or 100, and you know, I, I'm gonna just, you know, DuPont trades at 10 times EBITDA. There's a company in Europe that's doing something similar um, in terms of biofuels, um, and it's called Nesti, and that trades at 20 times EBITDA. And again, if, if once you prove one of these out, 
you know, the it'll be off to the races and growth and partnerships. So I think it will trade higher than that. But, you know, you take any number, you know, you can haircut management's numbers, put, you know, any multiple on it, and you get just really attractive upside from these levels. Let, let me ask, I wanted to go through some, you know, I, I see, I've written a lot on the blog about the SPACs that I think are positioned to do well and SPACs that I think are positioned to just try and take money and run. And I can see some of that on both sides origin, but uh, let me put this out. And I just want to talk financing real quick. So they originally were going to, you know, Arteus was a $750 million SPAC. I think they got $200 million in pipe alongside the SPAC, but there were tons of redemptions in this, in this SPAC. And they came out and they even published a slide that said, Hey, don't worry. Even though our redemption came in way higher than we thought, we are still we still have enough funding to make to we have enough funding to get through origin two and the reason that they said that was they they shifted a lot of their funding from cash staying cash coming in from the SPAC because all that got redeemed they said we're going to do it with project financing right? right and i just found their language and everything around the project financing a little strange because you know project financing the way they were saying it when they say hey we've got we've got origin one and two funded you think it's committed project financing but i think you said earlier they haven't even chosen a site for Origin 2 yet. Like, I don't know how they right. could have committed committed project financing until at least they've got a site until they start breaking down. So I just want to talk to you about the funding. How committed is this financing? How real is this financing? Because your worry with all SPACs is it goes back to the, the orders issue we talked about, right? They say, oh, we've got a million yep. orders, but it turns out those orders were, you know, LOIs, not non-committed. Do they have, oh, yeah, sure, we'll give you financing, but there's nothing on paper. And they when it comes time to finance Origin 2, they're in trouble. So it's a great point. So let's start with the slide that they published. You know, to me, the big problem with the slide was they, you know, they have a February 2021 and a June 2021 side by side, but they never actually disclosed the project financing assumptions in February 2021 until this slide. So we look at it and we just say, like, oh, you're just moving money around. That's just Excel math. Like we feel misled. And I don't think that's an unreasonable point of view. I think what happened here, and you know, I, I I try to get them to admit it, but they won't. I think the SPAC was too big for this deal. And so if you flip this around and said, okay, when this deal was announced in February, it was the hottest pipe market of all time. You saw just these $200 million SPACs doing these huge pipes. Like OWL, which is, uh, I, I don't even remember the, um, the SPAC ticker, but OWL was like a 200 or $250 million SPAC with a billion five pipe. And so this pipe, I could tell you, it wasn't one of those where the banks had to call in favors. This was a lot of you know, guys getting scaled back and they only did $200 million. And so I think what happened here was the SPAC was too big. If they raised a $500 million pipe, you know, the numbers on the left would have looked even more ridiculous. Like at some point you want to optimize the financial structure too. So if we took the, you know, the project financing, I haven't done this math, but if we take the 558 in the February 2021 column, and look at like the leverage, we would say like, that's inefficient, that's too low. So in my opinion, they had to have conservative assumptions because this fact was just too big. And that ties in with why the pipe was, was so small. And, you know, what would we be saying now if the, if the SPAC was half the size and they offset that in the pipe, you know, it wouldn't even be a conversation, which is, you know, just the irony of how, how markets change. In terms of your question on how committed the financing is, you know, for any of us who've had a career doing mergers and acquisitions, you know, you go to the bank and you say, I want to buy this company. Can I finance it? And they do a bunch of work and they say, yes, we think you can finance it. And they'll say, okay, is that financing committed? And in order to get the financing committed, you basically have to start paying the bank and signing a contract and have your plan for, you know, here's when we're announcing the deal. And in M&A deals, and that, scenario, that happens, you know, weeks before the deal is announced. And so to some extent, it's very similar to how you know, the project financing here works. Like you can go to them now and say, we want to do this project. They'll go do the work and say like, okay, we, we think that's very achievable. We think here are the ranges of debt you could take on. Here are the ranges and rates. Obviously they won't share it with us, but this is what I know they're looking at. And only when it gets closer, you know, that's when the financing gets committed. So if you have a, you know, 2009, 2008, 2009 type event happen between now and locking this financing, like, that's a real risk. You know, it's I would call it a low probability event, but it is absolutely something where all lending stops. Well, banks are going to say like, well, we don't care. You know, um, so to that standpoint, I would say like, you know, they are as the the ability to raise capital is probably as high as you would think right now. But 
you know, right now is not the beginning of 2023 when it's going to be committed. Okay, perfect, perfect. Let's see. They, at scale, they're projecting EBITDA margins of 60%. I'm not a chemicals analyst, but that does seem pretty high for, you know, they're making a commodity, they're making a commodity input. Yes, it's, yes, it's ESG. Yes, I think there's demand for it, hopefully proprietary process, but 60% seems pretty high. Could you, could you just talk about that mar- that long-term margin outlook? So in the little bit of what I've learned on, about the chemistries, most of these specialty chemical companies take refined inputs and create more refined outputs. The big difference here is because you're taking pulp wood, it is an unrefined input and then you're making a refined output. And so because of that dynamic that there's no refining done beforehand and the product is just so, the input is so cheap, that's what accounts for the 60% margins. So theoretically, you know, even even if we ignore, I mentioned earlier the risks around the, we, we're gonna get a premium because we're gonna split the carbon credits or anything. I mean, theoretically, these guys should be the lowest cost producers of every of all the inputs they're making because they're using a much cheaper input to make their own input. In theory, that's exactly right. And I'll tie it back to origin one, right? Origin, like right now we can have this debate and I can tell you like, oh, it's because, you know, you're comparing refined, refined versus refined, unrefined. And, you know, to me and to you, that probably makes sense, but we still want to see it. And so, you know, origin one, you know, actually proving that concept, I think all of a sudden everyone's going to say like, okay, this is interesting. Let's go back to came public through a SPAC. I, I've been keeping track of things good and bad with SPAC. Some of them, some of them are all bad, and some of them got a lot of good in it. And I see both sides of this, so I just want to walk through some of the stuff. And we've already hit on some, but you know, the first thing we talked about management here. This was a big SPAC. They said, "Hey, we are top tier SPAC, so we had access to the best deals." There was a pipe that had very credible strategic and financial investors inside the pipe. It was a nice size pipe, but I didn't. I don't believe I saw management putting any real equity or any of their own capital behind this deal. So I just want to talk about those dynamics real quick. So Charles Drucker, one of the sponsors, um, he was buying in the open market at 10, which makes me feel better about some of my buys. Um, and, 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 then, and it was pretty big buys too. I'm seeing they were in May and June, and I think he bought about seven and a half million, as you said, around $10 per share. Right. And then actually last night, uh, I think it was Boone and Rich Riley bought some stock in the open market as well. So you've had some insider buying. They must have known that we were going to talk about them today. Um, obviously kidding. But um, it was, yeah, Boone and Rich last night made some open market purchases. So about, you know, about a half million between the two of them. Yeah. I've got a little screenshot of all the open market purchases, which for those who aren't listening, you know, open market purchases, I'd say, are rare across the spectrum. But especially in SPAC world, open market purchases have been pretty damn rare. But so, so I, I have a, I have an interesting statistic for you. Someone just sent this to me. Um, eight out of eighty companies that IPO'd in the past year. Sorry, eight. So eighty companies IPO during the past year are down fifty percent in the past six months, and only eight of the eighty have seen insider buy. So to me, it's like a nice sign that you know you're willing to step up. And listen, I, I mean, I don't want to take this too far off the rails and talk to SPACs. Like, we know sponsor economic math. We know, you know, that the sponsor are here for a low basis. So, you know, putting in more capital, considering the size of their stake, I think is a nice show of confidence. You know, so I talked about the bad. They didn't put any, they didn't really put any new equity in the SPAC sponsors, but they did open market purchases. I, I guess I also want to acknowledge the good side too. Apollo came in here when the SPAC was, you know, it's ne- it's never good when redemptions run so high that you need a backstop. But when they needed a backstop, Apollo came in, wrote a, wrote a nice size check, got this over the finish line, and they didn't really uh, demand too much for, you know, if it was I was me, honestly, it was sh- I was shocked at how cheap they did it for. They did it for a 3% fee, which- Can, like can, you, give, can you give some more background on the Apollo and, and kind of what they demanded, what they got, what they did? Sure. So this is all publicly filed. They got a 3% fee for providing capital and they put up 30 million bucks. So if you think about that on a, you know, on a per share basis, they were buying at 970 versus 10. It's really not a big deal at that point. And so, and Apollo subsequently wrote, they put out an ESG report annually. They talked about origin. Um, so I just thought it was interesting that clearly they saw value. Uh, you know, I'm sure they don't feel so great about it right now, but they saw value at 10 that they were willing to put in this capital at tighter at you know only a three percent discount i've actually talked about how i think pipes need to evolve and we can have that conversation separately but 
it just goes to show you that you have some of the smartest investors in the world willing to commit at you know much higher prices. Yeah, and, and Apollo is Apollo's doing the work on construction. They're doing the work on you know the viability of these projects. So it's just when you think about who's checked off and who's kind of signed their name to this work, besides like the original Pepsi, Danone, and Nestle. Besides the consultants, you have you know guys like Apollo, guys like Capital Group, guys like Barron Capital. So some pretty sophisticated investors also kind of you know rubber stamping it, so to speak. The more I thought about it, like, I just thought the Apollo writing that check was probably the most bullish thing I'd seen in a SPAC because yeah, it's it's not a crazy large check, but it's a thirty million dollar check. That's a that's meaningful yeah. size. And they came in, they basically did it at three percent discount to trust. They basically did it at trust. We're we're fifty percent below that price right now. So you you get a pretty good discount. But the fact that they were willing to come in and do that. It said to me that that they had done serious work on this and they they saw the story. I, I just thought that was really bullish. I, I would also add, as we talk about financing risk, well, now you have as an investor, and I'm sure there's a relationship there between, you know, the, the sponsors and Apollo. Like you have arguably the best financing firm in the world, so that's a pretty good place to be if you want to talk about well, what happens if we have a financial crisis between now and then? It's like, well, you know, maybe the terms get a little worse, but you have someone like Apollo in your pocket that has you know, hundreds of billions of credit designated assets. Like that's a good relationship to have. Yeah. It's, and, you know, most of the things where I've seen p- people come in to backstop or save a backstop are, oh, we're hitting, you know, convertible debt that pays a 6% interest rate and converts at 1150 or something, which that's For extremely sure. expensive paper, right? You get a free call option. There's lots of cash that's coming into the company from the pipe and everything and anything that remains back. So that's great paper to have if you can get it. Just the fact Apollo was coming in for a straight common struck me as pretty good. Let's go back to some of the bad. You know, I, I think if you just showed me origin in a box, nothing else, I would look at it. And I would say, oh, this is a SPAC that this is a SPAC that's buying a science project. It was a night, it was announced mid-February, absolute height of SPAC mania. And you know, in the you mentioned in their Q2 slides they had name dropping left and right, all of these things, which I get you want to show the credibility of your project. But at the same time, whenever you see all these name drops for something that it's probably a lot of sizzle and not quite a lot of stake yet, you get really worried. And their deal deck include a comp to disruptive tech, which the comps that they had there were Beyond Meat, Plug Power, Tesla, Sunrun, and Desktop Metal. And you say those five names and you say SPAC at the height of February and you go, yeah. Oh, I, I know what they're comping to every meme stock. I know what they're going for. So I just see a lot of red flags circling around there. And I was hoping you could maybe, I know it threw a lot out there. I was hoping maybe you could help me address them. So I'm sure I'm going to forget parts of that question. So just please remind me, I'm not trying to dodge any of it. So, uh, I'm just the king of seven part questions right now. I'm just throwing everything okay. else out of You know, you. it's like a, one question in 27 parts, like uh, back to school. But um, so what I thought was interesting, and I talked to them about, you know, okay, you like ESG and key themes, why not EV, for instance? And they said, well, two reasons. EV looks like one of those areas where there's going to be one or two winners. Tesla seems like one. I don't know who's going to be the other. And the multiples at the time were absolutely crazy. And you look at, and and they have arguably just as much execution risk as Origin does. And you look at Origin and you say like, okay, if I look at EV to the you know 2026 base case EBITDA, and I know everyone's going to jump down my throat for saying 2026, but Everyone's doing the same for the other SPACs. Let's be like for like, and we don't have another basis. It's trading at under three times EBITDA. So to me, what was interesting about this is, you're again, you're not making a bet on valuation. This isn't like, oh, I'm buying something at five times revenue and the comps are at 10. So hopefully it goes in between, I make money. This is binary because you know, if it works, it's not trading at 2.7 times. And even if you cut that EBITDA in half, it's not going to trade at five and a half times, right? So I think from, from the standpoint of, you know, this was announced in peak SPAC. I think that was true. I, like I said, I think they did themselves a disservice by not getting the peak SPAC pipe. But, you know, again, that aside, that's done. So I don't think valuation is an issue here. And these guys are very valuation oriented, you know, having run fintech companies, which are like the ultimate Garpy investment. So I'll say that's part one. Part two on the name dropping, you know, they're name dropping because their stock's at $5, in my opinion. This isn't like, we want to name drop. We want to build fluff. This is like, look, we get it. Our stock's at five. The market's telling us you don't believe us. Let us add credibility. Like we've already told you about our big customers. We've announced things with arrangements with Ford and Palantir. You still don't care. You think there's risk on construction. And again, that's where I think there's risk. So, you know, 
I think from their standpoint, it was let us show you how we're de-risking construction risk. And that's by talking about, you know, we have some of the best engineering companies and, you know, all the various uh, counterparts to this project. And so your point on this is a science project, like, yeah, like you could say it's a science project, but how did they elevate the science project? Well, they know that the biggest customers, you know, have demoed the product. They know that they've had the consultants check it out. They know from their customer calls that, uh, you know, this is real and demand is there. So what arguably started as a science project, as you called it, has been diligent and assessed for its viabilities of business. And again, to me, I, they obviously feel good about it. They did the deal. To me, I think it's great because, you know, it's just this execution risk on construction, which I feel okay about. I mean, remember, what's also unique here is this isn't one of those situations where you're wrong, the SPAC goes to five and the sponsors bail. And we can have this conversation if we see sponsors selling, but if the downside case is zero, that means the sponsors actually lose here. That's not the case for a lot of these others. Like their basis is super low. You can do the math and figure it out. But, you know, if the, the bear case here is zero, like they will lose their, you know, 17, $20 million, whatever they put in. Whereas some of these other deals, it's like, oh, the SPAC goes to six bucks, the sponsor's still up 5X and, you know, they're going to try to get out as soon as they can. Yeah. So, it, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. So I, I think that cuts both ways. Like the bear case for us means that the sponsors could actually see impairment. Now, again, if you see Boone and Drucker and Rich selling at like, you know, at current prices, we should say, okay, like they're clearly running away. There's a problem here. And I think the stock gets killed on that. But, you know, the fact that they're buying, knowing that like, hey, if we get this wrong, like we lose everything. I think that's that's pretty powerful and shows you, you know, that they're mindful of the upside and this isn't just a financial engineering transaction for them. Perfect. Well, yeah, I want to be mindful of time, but I also want to make sure, I, I feel like we've done a great job covering a lot of origin. Again, this is a, it's a little bit of a science project and neither of us are scientists, but they put out lots of stuff on, on their website and everything. People can go check that out, out for diligence. Don't you, but is there anything you think we should have covered with origin bear side, upside bull case, anything that we, we missed you wish we had hit? I don't think so. I mean, listen, I, I love doing these debates. And when I'm on Twitter and I get these bears coming at me, like, I love it. Like, I'm a classically trained investor. Like, I want to know the other side because if you tell me something, I'm going to go research it and I'll end up feeling better or worse about it. And so I like hearing, you know, I, I don't like these guys on Twitter where, like, if you criticize them, you know, they block you or whatnot. For me, I, I want the criticism. I want to know what I'm missing. I want to know what questions to go back to management with or to go back to other investors. Um, so I really enjoy the dialogue. And I just think, you know, what's important here is for most stocks, you're thinking like, how do I make 20% while only risking 10? And getting that two to one skew is usually a pretty, you know, classic long investment. And here, that's not what you're getting. You're going to get, you know, 100% down. You know, you can pick your multiple up. So the skew still looks good, but the real risk of impairment is there. And you have to decide, like one of the, more interesting conversations I've had on origin was, okay, Lewis, say you're right. And let's just say for the sake of argument, the stock is going to be worth 50 or hundred bucks. Why don't I buy it at 15 when origin one is like up and running? And my response is, well, I don't know if the stock will be at 15 or 750 or 25 when origin one is up and running. I just don't know. But the notion that I'd rather trade this to have less downside and less upside that's not wrong. Like that is, that just comes back to what level of risk are you comfortable with? You know, at this point, like I want to dream the dream and say that this could be up, you know, 10, 20 X, but I know I could be down everything. And if you want to wait to the point where maybe it can be up three X, but only down, you know, 20, 30%, I respect that. Like that is a personal decision on your risk tolerance. And, and it's one of those where like, keep this on the back burner and keep, you know, watching how they execute. You know, I, I respect that. I would just say this is probably just me and my my own failings psychologically as an investor and everything. But every time I've heard someone say it's at 10 right now, it could be zero or 50. I'm going to buy when this is de-risked a little, right? When we've hit point A and B. And yeah, the stock might be 25. But at that point, the downside will be 20 and the upside will be 60 or something, right? And every time I've heard someone say that, and again, theoretically, the stock price was at 10 at the time. I don't know a lot of people who are able to pull the trigger at 25 when they were looking at it at 10 and they said they'd hit point A, B, and then they'd buy it at 25. I, it, maybe that's it's right. I just, 
it, it's if, very if you hard. come back to like VC terms, it's like, all right, the guys who are in the series B come back bigger in the C and they come back bigger in the D. It's not really different. What I like to do to keep myself intellectually honest is write it down, right? Like I will say in general, like I have sized this at a level that I am comfortable with and I will be more comfortable taking it on when origin one is up and running. And I will therefore take it from an X percent portfolio position to a Y percent portfolio position when I see that catalyst happen, because I at least know this is moving in the right direction. I've been over an hour. want to be cognizant of your time. I think we hit everything origin. I know you follow a lot of other SPACs, though. Just if people are looking for other places to research, if I'm looking for the next podcast to have you on for, what are the, the other SPACs that are kind of, or I guess it's D-SPACs, but what are the other D-SPACs that are? I mean, uh, honestly, we, we can talk about the market more broadly. Um, I actually think Catapult, after its implosion, could be kind of interesting. Um, which, you know, I tweeted this out. I, I know you saw it cause I think you liked it, but they, they had an excuse. Hey, we had to cut, we had to, you know, they did the typical, we despacked and we slash guidance. And they said, the reason we're slashing guidance is all of our firms we were selling into their it staff. When they were told you can't work from home anymore, they up and quit. So the it staffs we wanted to integrate with weren't there. It was maybe the stupidest excuse I've ever seen for missing guidance. Well, so I don't trust the management team, which makes it hard for me to invest. But what I will say is, if you look at their performance versus Wayfair's U.S. performance, it's exactly the same, right? And Wayfair is 70% of their business. So it's not really surprising. Like 70% of your business goes down, you're going to go down. Your biggest customer withdraws guidance, you're going to be forced to withdraw guidance because if you maintain guidance, you're either lying or you're telling something about your customer that they don't want to admit. But if for a second we believe that the street estimates for Catapult are accurate, I'm sorry, for Wayfair are accurate, and you kind of overlay them onto Catapult, all of a sudden you have a really cheap stock that's going to start growing again next year. And it has no debt, it's cash flow positive. So it's kind of interesting. If you believe that this is just like a tough comps from lapping e-commerce versus a structural broken business, I think the stock trades at six or seven times normalized EBITDA. So it, you know, I'm not there yet, but I can see why like there's a reason to do more digging. For me, what's been you know, frustrating is if you look at all of the SPACs that have closed since April 1st and what has happened to them on earnings. So 39 of the 61 SPACs or 64% traded down. And even the SPACs that revised up 2021 guidance traded up an average of 1%. So if I want to put my fundamental stock picker hat on, you know, why do I want to be picking stocks where if they raise guidance, I make 1%. If they maintain, they go down three. And heaven forbid they you know, reduce or withdraw, they're down 16. So when I frame the universe, it's like, all right, this is just you know, ridiculous. And, and you know, whether you like Origin or not, I thought the actual quarter was really great. They gave you all positive metrics, all the updates were good, and the stock still faded hard. And so you know, again, if, if you didn't like Origin before the quarter, you don't like it after. If you liked it before, you got more data points. But just dynamics like that where like it got better, but the stock can't power through, I just think that's a a really bad SPAC dynamic. And I was looking at some performance metrics year to date. You know, we know that people are like, oh, small caps had a tough time. Well, the Russell's actually up. Um, this is as of a few days ago, but let's call it 12% on the year. And SPACs have underperformed by 3,600 basis points. So I just look at it and, and I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting kind of value plays to buy off the bottom and some baby with the bathwater. But I'm also not willing to for too many names to step in and, you know, swim against the stream. Yeah. And just, I guess I'll add two things there for listeners. We were talking about catapult earlier. Catapult is a buy now pay later company. They actually, most of their business is from Wayfair. And what they do is if a firm who is one of the larger buy now pay laters, they've got a partnership. If a firm says we're rejecting this loan because, you know, Lewis's credit is too bad. We can't lend it to them. They pass it over to catapult and catapult kind of does, subprime buy now pay later and you know until they got until they gave that awful earnings excuse and got absolutely slaughtered i think most people would have pointed to them as an example of one of the better spacs right because tiger global wrote a big check into their pipe they came they were growing they were profitable and they announced in december which is kind of before the real spac mania got really crazy so you said oh it probably announced that a reasonable-ish multiple big, big serious investor into the pipe, but I mean that that thing it, it was it was one of the worst excuses 
I've ever seen. And then on, on your thing with earnings, you know, I, I've written before about Iron Source IS. That's a, you know, their revenue retention rate is like 150%. They're growing 30, 40, 50% year over year. They've raised guidance twice. They they just announced a great Q2. They raised guidance and the market just doesn't care. And I, I'm with you. It, I there there's a lot of, you know, there's babies thrown out with the bathwater. I think there's definitely a few babies thrown out with the bathwater, but most of the bathwater is really dirty bathwater here. Oh, I, I 100% agree. So, but it's funny. In February and March, I was making my list of like, what are the names I'd want to short? And that may be a dirty word for your podcast listeners. So I apologize. But you could just feel that euphoria that you feel in any cycle. And now I have find myself making lists of like, what are names that I want to own? And even something like, uh, a mudrick with tops and it's traded well the last two days and it's coming into its deal boat. But this is a, a, a stock now that's raised guidance three times before close and trades at 11 bucks. And it, you know, it's a real business with cash flow at a reasonable multiple. The market just doesn't seem to care. And so you have these like negative technicals. You know, I think the question of when do you start buying these? I, I don't think that's an easy question to answer. Even something like a light, like I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bill Foley fan and you know, the stock is now under 10 and they've raised numbers twice. A light, and it, I, go ahead. And it's a, it's a cash flow machine. It's a cheap multiple. You know, there's there's really a lot of things to like here. And my view on something like the light is own the warrants because, you know, they'll make good decisions. And over that five-year duration, you know, or whenever they take them out, like you'll, you'll probably make some money because it's just a cheap form of leverage. But, you know, for you know, I'm looking at uh, the valuation for a stock that traded eight and a half times EBITDA, grows organically and has raised guidance twice. Like that just seems like a lot of hate when, you know, the peers have, you know, seen a lot of valuation expansion. A lot of these deals, going back to your point, they're priced in February. You just look at where the comps have traded, it's way down. And so you can argue like, oh, the comps are down 30%. So sure, the deal closing at 10 and going straight to seven, that makes sense. It's just doing what it couldn't do as a SPAC. But a light, you only see the comps go up. And so, uh, you know, I, I've written about a light on the blog, yet another value blog. I never mentioned on this podcast, but yet another value blog a couple of times. I, I will, I'll put, I'm putting my money where my mouth is full disclosure. I'm long, but not in crazy size or anything. I'm a big, big Foley fan as well. I, I think a light is going to be sold before the end of this year. So if you, I, I wrote about it a couple of weeks ago for, if you look at Kanae's Q2 earnings, which came out earlier this month, they, yep. they said, we think the the best risk reward in our portfolio is a light. Kanae yep. actually stepped in and when redemptions came in too high, they invested a lot of money in t- to cover the redemptions. Last week, an, an article bro- broke on Bloomberg that said Voya is looking to buy a light. And then if anybody looked, it was either yesterday morning or this morning, a light filed an 8K that updated all the change of controls for their uh, top management team. So I, I think a light is actually pretty likely to be to be sold. We're we're talking this August nineteenth, so people can come time. You know, you know what's a hard thing about the hard thing though about a light. So I got really excited about the deal too. Obviously, who wouldn't? But what's interesting is if you look at like if you think about the timing of how long an M and A deal usually takes, and the fact that fully voluntarily bought stock to like fill the redemption void. You have to think that no conversations were going on at that point because I disagree. If they were. Because okay. he's not buying stock on the open market. He's buying stock to f- fund the redemptions and he's doing it in a deal with the company, not on the open market. So one of the reasons I've, I'm always really interested when a comp- when a sponsor funds redemptions is because they can do that owning material, non-public information. Really? So, so th- that's shocking to me that he could buy at 10 and in theory the next day sell it at 14, right? I, I Look, I, I'm not a lawyer. Nothing on here is legal advice. Nothing on here is investment advice. Everybody should remember that. But my understanding of the way the rule works is a sponsor buying from a company or to cover redemptions is not an open market purchase. So you can do it with material non-public information in much the same way. You know, if a, com- if a company was going to do a, a pipe deal, they could come and they could give you all your material non-public information. You're buying from the company. If they give it to you, you can do it. So that that is my understanding. That's interesting. It's not a guarantee. I, I want everybody to be very careful, understand it, nothing's investment advice. But I, you know, at a minimum, I wouldn't be surprised if the the company was saying, hey, you know, Foley was getting weekly updates on how the business is going, the projections, and he decided to fund it. I would not be terribly shocked if he knew that there might be a little interest from Voya. Doesn't mean, hey, he might not even want to sell, right? The, right. The, if you look at his track record, I, I know the big, the big alight bulls think the stock's worth like $18. And so I, I doubt you'll see anyone come in and pay 
especially let alone Voya, you know, a hundred percent premium. But you know, it's good to know, obviously, that there's strategic uh, demand for an asset. I actually think one of the things that will turn around the SPAC market, and we're way too early for this, is you'll start to see some of the strategics come in, and you know, GM will decide like, oh, this one EV company is actually not bad. Let me pick that off because it's trading at a depressed level. And and I think as you see some you know strategic interest. You'll probably start the next cycle that results in exuberant prices and then back down. But you know, you need something like that as kind of a blessing that there is some some gold in this pond. You're probably right, and, and you've seen a little bit with gold, DraftKings bought Golden Nugget, right? And they, that was a very nice premium. That was a very nice multiple number. But yeah, it, it's probably going to take a couple buyouts, a couple of companies actually coming saying, "Hey, we're going to meet our numbers." This is pretty rare for a spec, but cool. Lewis, I, I got to be cognizant of time. Anything lingering on your mind you wish we had addressed here? No, really uh, appreciate you hosting me and uh, hopefully we can do this again soon. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. I'm going to put Lewis's Twitter handle in the show notes so everybody can go and give him a follow on Twitter. And Lewis, thanks for coming on. We can go from there. Thank you.